Arlington police say protests Monday remain generally peaceful, but say there were, quote, several agitators. Send me another unit, please. Send me another unit. Look what you did to my store. This is a movement, I'm telling you. They're not going to stop. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All right, welcome back to Into the Fray. Everything is still up in the air. This election is big, and if we don't get this right, we're going to have a whole new list of problems to deal with. But regardless of the outcome, the real issues, the fundamental entrenched problems that plague our nation will not be resolved by a single election. Rome wasn't built in a day, nor was it destroyed in a day. If we want to save our nation, we first have to understand it. Take a look at the Pledge of Allegiance, for example. How much do we really think about the meaning of those words that, chances are, we repeated daily growing up? Just the first line holds volumes. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. Notice what you're pledging allegiance to. The flag and the republic for which it stands. What is that? It's the rule of law. That was a new concept, and pretty unique, actually. Throughout history, most people have had to pledge allegiance to a person, and what that person wanted. Let's go back to allegiances themselves. What is an allegiance? Merriam-Webster's thesaurus states, Some common synonyms of allegiance are devotion, fealty, fidelity, loyalty. All these words mean faithfulness to something to which one is bound by pledge or duty. Throughout most of history, allegiance has been owed or given to a person, a king, a lord, one's conqueror. It was given only when there was something to be gained. Otherwise, it was demanded and taken by force of arms. Devotion, fealty, fidelity, and loyalty were compelled upon threat of death. Most of history is a nasty succession of the strong taking what they want and compelling the conquered to obey. For most of history, allegiance was nothing to be proud of, or at least it shouldn't have been. If you gave your allegiance, it was most often to save your own skin, or an attempt to get gain on the coattails of someone stronger than you. If your allegiance was required, it was against your will and given under duress, under the threat of violence. Allegiance itself is a means of consolidating and maintaining power. The more people who have sworn allegiance, the larger your pool of force is. If you're threatened, you call on those who have sworn their allegiance, and together you defeat the threat. If you wish to conquer, you call on those who owe you allegiance and presto, you have a larger force and more capacity to conquer. Let's take a look at it from another perspective, though. The perspective of one who has been compelled to allegiance. The ruler has a whim that he wants to build something, so he conscripts you and others from your town to build it, alongside people who have been compelled from other towns, and taxes everyone to pay for it. You could object, even resist, but the ruler would just send his army, whose loyalty he buys lavishing them with wealth and comforts, to crush and enslave you. You're not strong enough to resist them, you can't reason with them. You can't even beg for mercy. You're powerless. So you don't resist. You go and you build his thing. When you're older, he decides he wants his neighbor's wife and lands. Since he has to conquer his neighbor to take them, he needs to build an army. He conscripts your son. You have no choice in the matter. Your son is going. If you resist, you'll be beaten and humiliated, possibly killed. And your son will be taken anyway. And he'll die for what? For nothing. For the caprice of another man. Even if you're not in so lowly a position, even if you can gain from offering your allegiance willfully, you're typically offering it to a criminal 
and your allegiance will require you to make yourself complicit in his crimes. It's a cabal, the compact of vile sinners. It's organized crime. You make yourself complicit in the enslavement, abuse, and humiliation of your fellow man. That is what your allegiance to this man really means. This isn't a specific time period I'm talking about either. This isn't just the Middle Ages, or Soviet Russia, or Maoist China. It's pretty much the whole of the ancient world, too. How do you think Darius and Xerxes became as powerful as they did? They conquered their neighbors, then demanded fealty and tribute to expand their conquest. They funded their exploits on the backs of their victims, conscripted their children into massive armies, and marched on in their quest for self-aggrandizement. Rome did the same, as did pretty much every other kingdom, fiefdom, and empire. Don't imagine yourself as the king. You wouldn't have been the king. It's simple math. There's one king and a whole lot of people under him. Imagine yourself as the lowly, powerless serf. Odds are, simple math, that's who you'd have been. Then came the Enlightenment. Progress was slow, but a transition began from total authoritarianism to the sovereignty of the individual. That is why Western culture and Western civilization is under attack. That is Western civilization's gift to the world and the reason power-hungry organizations seek to tear it down. A piece at a time, those abuses were mitigated as individual sovereignty came into its own. With the advent of the Constitution and its accompanying Bill of Rights, U.S. citizens and everyone living in countries influenced by America's constitutional advancements flipped the tables on basically all of history. Most importantly, supreme authority in the United States rests in law, not in a person. That is huge. No ding-dong can unilaterally declare, off with his head, or, I want that woman, so I'm going to take her and kill her husband. Or, I decided that half your country belongs to me, so thousands will suffer and die so I can have it. Those are all actual events. Even worse is when some dude in an absurdly over-decorated military uniform in Africa or China or the USSR or some art school reject with a toothbrush mustache in an inferiority complex in Germany decides that exterminating an entire race will secure his power, and then he compels his people to carry out the slaughter. This has happened far too many times. No one in the U.S. has that power. Ultimate legal authority rests in a carefully crafted document, a document that can be amended to address lingering legal holes, but is difficult enough to amend that bad ideas rarely make it through the process. This document divides power so that if Entity A wants to do something terrible, they can't move on it without entities B, C, D, E, and F. If any of those entities decide it's a violation of law, or just a straight-up bad idea, they can stand in the way and nothing happens. If the president decided he wanted to enslave half the country, Congress would just say, um, how about no, and impeach him. The military would say, sorry, Mr. President, the power to declare war rests in the hands of the legislature. So the president would be thwarted, impeached, convicted, and removed from power. Notice that even in an extreme circumstance like that, there's due process for the offender. Another one of those sovereignty of the individual things. Under the Constitution, individual sovereignty cannot be violated without due process. How about abuses on the individual? The First Amendment covers free exercise of religion, speech, assembly, dissemination of information, and the government must hear petitions for the redress of grievances. The Second Amendment secures the means by which individual sovereignty is ensured against both criminals and the state. The Fourth Amendment covers due process and individual sovereignty over property. The Ninth Amendment says that the rights covered in the Bill of Rights are not a complete list, and those not specifically mentioned are nonetheless still protected rights and held inviolable. The Tenth Amendment specifically covers assignment of authority, that any power not enumerated specifically to the federal government is deferred to the states, or to the people, depending on what specific power you're referring to. 
State constitutions are meant to enumerate the specific powers held by the states. Anything not enumerated in either the national constitution or a given state's constitution is retained by the people. This is why it's so important to remain involved in politics, to hold our representatives accountable. If no one's watching, they can pass whatever they like, irrespective of the legal limits to their authority. Like most things, a car, our home, our health, the endurance of our liberty is dependent on our diligence in performing regular and proper maintenance. What are we pledging allegiance to? The rule of law. The republic which protects us from abuses of power by dividing that power between competing interests. The constitution which placed the majority of power over an individual in the hands of that individual. We're expected to govern ourselves. That means personal responsibility and self-control. We don't pledge allegiance to the caprice of a person or a group. When we stand and place our hand over our heart, when we recite those words, we pledge allegiance to a system designed to secure our individual sovereignty. The benefits of that allegiance are very similar to those wielded by a tyrant, but now harnessed and turned for good. If our republic is threatened, our allegiance brings us together to defend one another. Not the power of a king, one another. If a person or group seeks to gain by conquest, we're empowered to say no, and then their plans are dead in the water, provided we have maintained our republic. As of late, we have been utterly failing in that duty. There have been a lot of violations of our freedom-securing system, but that's our fault for not holding our representatives' proverbial feet to the fire. We were given the tools we needed to maintain our rights and our individual sovereignty. What did Benjamin Franklin say when asked what system the Second Continental Congress had chosen? A republic, if you can keep it. If you can keep it. How do we lose such a gift? By giving it away. By trading it. A gift of immeasurable value for trinkets. There's a famous quote misattributed to both Alexis de Tocqueville and Alexander Teitler in various forms, which states... A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy, which is always followed by a dictatorship. There is another version of this that floated Twitter for a while. The American Republic will endure until the day Congress discovers that it can bribe the public with the public's money. Forget attribution. Look at the value of the content. We have absolutely done this to ourselves. It's justified six ways to Sunday, but it's immoral and akin to a snake eating itself by the tail. There's another quote I want to read you. This one I am quite confident of the attribution. This is from the Daily Wire in an article called Remembering the Ever-Relevant Words of Walter E. Williams. Walter Williams was a professor of economics at George Mason University until he passed away early last week. He said, You men win your way into office and retain that office essentially by promising some Americans that you will give them the fruits of another man's labor. Think about that for a moment. I had a conversation with a friend recently who relayed a series of conversations he had with an acquaintance. This acquaintance represents so many people I've met. They were utterly ignorant of and disinterested in politics beyond what they could get from the government. When you slow down and consider that process, that people had to work and produce, had to expend their labor in exchange for a living, and then the government took a hefty percentage of that living and gave some of it to you? What have you done? There's a meme I saved a long time ago because it perfectly explains this. It says, To say you have a claim to my property is to say you have a claim to the labor I performed to obtain it. To say you have a claim to my labor is to say that I am your slave. This is why capitalists are so defensive of their property. Williams said something very similar. 
The moral tragedy that has befallen Americans is our belief that it is okay for government to forcibly use one American to serve the purposes of another. That, in my book, is a working definition of slavery. At another time, Williams said, There are many farm handouts, but let's call them what they really are, a form of legalized theft. Essentially, a congressman tells his farm constituency, Vote for me. I'll use my office to take another American's money and give it to you. Remove the word farm from the last quote. He was specifically talking about farm subsidies, but the principle applies across the board. There are many handouts, but let's call them what they really are, a form of legalized theft. Essentially, a congressman tells his constituency, vote for me, I'll use my office to take another American's money and give it to you. He wasn't done there. This is a principle that every voter needs to understand clearly. He said, the recognition of the fact that Congress has no resources of its own forces us to acknowledge that the only way Congress can give one American one dollar is to first, through intimidation, threats, and coercion, confiscate that dollar from some other American. If a private citizen did the same thing that Congress does, we would call it an immoral act, namely theft. Acts such as theft, that are immoral when done privately, do not become moral when done collectively. I'll finish my quote spree with two final thoughts from this exceptional thinker. Helping one's fellow man in need by reaching into one's own pockets is a laudable and praiseworthy goal. Doing the same through coercion and reaching into another's pockets has no redeeming features and is worthy of condemnation. And, but let me offer you my definition of social justice. I keep what I earn, and you keep what you earn. Do you disagree? Well then tell me how much of what I earn belongs to you, and why. The theft of labor is bad enough, but it's also a coercion of power. If the government is paying your rent, who would risk that by voting against the politicians who insure it? If the government is paying for your school or your kid's school, who would risk that by voting against the politicians who insure it? If you're relying on Medicare, subsidized housing, government scholarships, are you going to vote against the politicians insuring the continuation of those programs? Where do you think that money comes from? It's coming from your neighbor who's paying for your college as well as college for their own children. They're paying their mortgage and part of your rent. They're paying their own doctor bills and yours. Imagine if you could see them actually lining up at your apartment office or at your doctor's reception desk, announcing in a tired voice, one after another, that they're there to pay for you. Then you see the government representative and you realize that every last one of these people is here under duress. They're being compelled, under threat of jail, to swipe that debit card or sign that check. Then imagine you can see them passing up certain foods at the store, not buying their child a bicycle for her birthday, or unable to repair their car, because the government representative forced them to expend a significant part of their living supporting you. But you won't give it up. You continue to empower the politicians ensuring this crime, because it benefits you. Then what happens? Those politicians become comfortable in their power. They feel secure enough to abuse it. They have already used their power to benefit you. Now they're going to do it for themselves. They use their position for a little insider trading in the stock market, or to benefit their friends who return the favor. They become comfortable enough that they just really don't want to give up their position and begin collaborating with similarly comfortable politicians to secure and support each other. They make unsavory deals in quid pro quo arrangements. They entangle the nation in foreign interests and foreign wars. They see the unhappy throngs dependent on them, and they think they can make people better. So they regulate everything down to limits on soda cup sizes. Even if they fail, what's to lose? Their constituents will never vote them out so long as they control Social Security and post-retirement medical coverage. Voters have come to expect and rely on them. One last quote from Professor Williams. 
Three-fifths to two-thirds of the federal budget consists of taking property from one American and giving it to another. Were a private person to do the same thing, we'd call it theft. When government does it, we euphemistically call it income redistribution. But that's exactly what thieves do. Redistribute income. Three-fifths to two-thirds. Three-fifths to two-thirds of the federal budget. I already asked you to imagine the family who passed up food in the store and repairing their car because the government continues to take thousands of dollars from them each year. Now imagine you can see another couple give up on starting a business that would have supported their family and the families of all their employees, but they couldn't save enough money to get it going because thousands of dollars were being stripped from them year after year. And three-fifths to two-thirds of that didn't go to national defense or roads and bridges. It went to their neighbors. More than half of what the federal government does is take money from people and give it to other people. Politicians have made a dirty arrangement with their voters to do the stealing for them. It's not just theft. It's the exchange of theft for votes, or in other words, for power. Do we pledge allegiance to a flag that stands as a symbol of the rule of law and the principles and values that secure our rights? Or do we pledge allegiance to the people who give us stuff? If we don't understand what it is we're fighting to preserve, we can never succeed. When we give politicians the mandate to provide these services, we also give them the power to implement and enforce them. Redistribution programs inherently include a transfer of power from the people, from the individual, to the politicians. The more they provide, the more power they consolidate. We're about a step and a half away from those both being total. When the state promises to provide everything, which many politicians are, they are also, subtly, demanding total power. When Top Cop Harris promises that everyone will end up in the same place, she's promising the state will ensure all resources are distributed equitably, requiring total control. Everything must be regulated, everything must be controlled, or it will not meet their standard of equity. When politicians promise free healthcare, free college, and expanding assistance programs to ensure equity, they're promising the state will regulate and distribute all resources, requiring total control. This is communism. Socialism and communism, ultimately they're the same thing. The allure of socialism and communism is that the state provides, but it's a bait and switch. In this system, the state controls the allocation of resources, and by necessity, the means of producing those resources. They control the resources, property, and labor, you. And then you discover, after it's too late, that the equity you clamored for has made you a slave. The politicians who promised you everything, at the expense of your neighbor, now promise each other everything at your expense. After all, what made you different from your neighbor? Then things get really dark. Now those politicians have power, and that power must be protected. That's the fear of every authoritarian. Threats to their power. That they'll lose their position, either to an outside force, or because the people over whom they lord got fed up and rise against them. Any potential challenge, even the merest perceived threat, must be immediately eliminated. And like that, you've gone from enslaving your neighbors perhaps indirectly, to living in slavery yourself. The state controls the means of production. That includes you. They tell you what to do and when to do it. The needs of the state, or in other words, the needs of those in power, must be met. And now you are part of the machine that meets it. You long for the days when you could voluntarily quit your job when your boss was horrible and just seek a new one. Shoot, now you'd settle for the freedom just to decide what job you did. When the state controls the means of production, in order to provide equitably for everyone, of course. They control what jobs need doing and who will do them. It could be worse. You could be one of those poor fools who spoke out after your nation crossed the event horizon. That fool was carted off to a labor camp. 
It was then that you realized that there are different levels of slavery, and you weren't fool enough to raise your head, let alone your voice, and risk joining him. Then you look back and wonder at the distance traveled from those youthful school days pledging allegiance to a flag, a symbol of the rule of law, rather than these politicians who now have enough power to have become the law themselves. You wish you could go back, now understanding what that meant, why it was so important. You wish you could go back and give up the government benefits. Go back and not take from your neighbors, but stand with them against those politicians promising free stuff. You wish you could go back to your younger, more innocent self, the self who had no idea what lay ahead on that entitled path, and tell them, plead with them, to give it up. Give it all up. But you can, because you're not in a utopian factory, or a work camp. You're here, and that road has not yet been entirely trod. Like Ebenezer Scrooge, waking up after the final ghost has departed, you realize that the future has not yet come to pass, and there's still time. All right, I'm going to leave it there. As always, you can find me on Twitter and Parlor at RealIntoTheFray. If all goes to plan, next week's show will be a little different. I'll have two top representatives from the Recall Newsom campaign, and we'll be discussing why we should dethrone His Royal Highness, and more importantly, how. If you don't live in California, but you really wish you could get rid of your governor, this might be of value to you. Till then, be informed, stay safe, don't do anything stupid. Thank you.